0: From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous shows. On this week...
1: I was born and raised in Buffalo. I'm a native all three years of my life, and I love my city. Love it deeply. But a part of loving anything or anyone is accountability. And I'm not going to pretend that we haven't always had an issue with segregation and racism, because we have.
0: I'm Jay Moran. Thanks for listening. This week, we revisit a conversation with the president of the Buffalo chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists, Ejaz Jassil. As president of the National Association of Black Journalists, Ejaz Jassil spoke with Thomas O'Neill White and Angelie Preston to discuss the state of black journalism in Western New York and beyond, Buffalo media, and the obstacles black journalists face. Now, Thomas O'Neill White and Angelie Preston with Ejaz Jaseel, President of the Buffalo Chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists.
2: Welcome back to What's Next. Thomas O'Neill White, Angelie Preston here with Ijaz Jaseel, Reporter for Investigative Post and President of the Buffalo Chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists. Ejaz, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. So glad to be here and glad to be back home. Honestly, this is my first home in journalism. So right.
2: Right. First thing I want to ask you is uh, the state of black journalists in Buffalo. What's your take on that?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And I think there are so many different things to look at. While I am pleased to see that there are a lot more black faces in our newsrooms and reporter capacities, producers, photographers. I still feel like we could be doing better. It shouldn't just be maybe one or two people per station that you're familiar with who are people of color. And we do have an issue with turnover. I think that's our biggest problem. And that's for a number of reasons. I mean, Buffalo, we have... Two hundred ten designated market areas in the nation, right? And of course both of you know what that is, because you're journalists, mm-hmm. but <laughs> for those who don't know, you know it's pretty much areas with uh where that are ranked by households that have the most televisions. And out of two hundred ten, Buffalo's fifty-fourth. So we're not at the bottom, but we're not the most desirable market per se. And in, in the aspect of black journalists. There are places within the top 10 that are just culturally better for African-Americans, like Atlanta, for example. So Mm -hmm. it's like I can go here and not only thrive professionally, but thrive personally. Now, I was born and raised in Buffalo. I'm a native all 30 years of my life, and I love my city, love it deeply. But a part of loving anything or anyone is accountability. And I'm not going to pretend that we haven't always had an issue with segregation and racism, because we have this is not always the most welcoming place for black people whether they were born and raised here or whether they come here so a lot of our talent we get here unfortunately for a number of
3: reasons don't stay very long so we we have to do things to change that the stories that you do is that reflective of your experience growing up in buffalo
1: absolutely one of the reasons that I love being a journalist in Buffalo specifically because I'm not going to lie. I had plans on leaving once once I graduated college, but I wanted to stay here and I'm glad that I'm here telling the stories I do because I having had experienced the inequities, the struggles, the hardships of being a black Buffalonian. I know what's important to the people. I am a part of excuse my grammatical incorrectness. I am the people, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So, I know the stories. I'm familiar with the issues. I'm familiar with what we can do to maybe make things better. And so a lot of my reporting, I am conscious on going to those communities that are underserved. Because I know growing up, I didn't see reporters and news cameras in my neighborhoods unless there was like a homicide or a burglary. And that's not all the East Side is. So I think I'm very conscious, and I think we all have to be conscious of the type of reporting that we're doing because there's so much more to Buffalo's black community.
3: Can we talk about your upbringing just more in depth? Because we talked about it off air, but can you just let our listeners know, because you are a native of the east side. Tell us about yes. yourself. Yes, yes. well i'm a gemini i have a cat just kidding kidding. (laughs) shout out to the gemini
1: (laughs) but about me within the context of being a black woman specifically this is something i say and i'm proud to say it in a way i'm very much a black american statistic i was born in the projects i spent most of my life in the projects low income raised by a single mother all of the stereotypical sort of things and the adversities, I pretty much, I was born and bred from those things. So being able to come from where I came from and being in the position that I am now and having both a platform and responsibility to accurately tell the stories of people who look like me, who come from where I come from, it's my greatest honor. You know, having grown up on the East Side and different parts of the East Side too, which is something that we also discussed before, you know, we got on air here. I want people to understand the East Side is not just the Fruit Belt. It's not just Jefferson Avenue. Say it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are so many issues that different communities on the East Side have. It's not, nothing is ever going to be a cure all. And I think, as good intentioned as people have been in the wake of and following 514, it's a lot of solutions being thrown out there that are not in the benefit of everyone on the East Side, everyone within the black community. So, you know, having lived in different parts of the East Side and having understood the struggle of being a black American and a black American in Buffalo, I can certainly attest to the fact that, you know, it's
3: a lot of a fight that we still have ahead of us. Do you think that Buffalo media, because you touched on it briefly in the beginning, do you think that Buffalo media is is doing well with having more people of color, more black voices on TV, on radio, in print newspapers, or do you think there's still more work to be done?
1: I think that eternally, it's always gonna be more work to be done, but I have to say I'm very proud of what I'm seeing in the newsrooms in this city. I'm proud not only to see how many more black faces there are, but the fact that our black reporters and producers are actually having a voice realizing that programming, like what's next matters, realizing that stuff like East Side Stories, which is what I do at Investigative Post, matters. I feel that this tragedy fueled by racism has really allowed producers and news directors to say, let's take a step back and let's hear from the voices who are being impacted by these issues. Because as well as intentioned as you may be, you... Don't know, even if you're the best reporter, the best white reporter, you still don't know what it's like to be black. And you can report accurately and fairly on a black issue. But without having had that lived experience, you'll never know the full context of how to tell a story, how to talk to people, and how to direct your reporting. So I'm very proud that a lot of our news directors and media owners are really hearing. Not just, you know, and not just hearing, but listening to reporters of color.
2: Are there still obstacles that black journalists, journalists of color face in this area or nationally?
1: Oh, absolutely. I would say locally and nationally. Locally, I think going back to what I said before, just the culture of being black, period, not just as a journalist, but as a citizen here, it is not always the easiest place to make it on a personal or professional level. Nationally, I think we still have a ways to go, too. I recall reading a story, I believe it was published in June, about a woman who interviewed a number of Black journalists throughout the nation, about how they felt after reporting following the rise of, like, the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd, the Breonna Taylor, and all that. And a lot of journalists said, you know, while they feel like those things kind of opened the door and opened conversations and sparked, you know, the idea in the minds of producers that, hey, we've got to change what we cover and how we cover it, it's still that sort of, there are still inequities. There are still places in newsrooms where people of color are not made to feel safe and comfortable. I'm not going to get into any detail but I've had my experiences where I've not been made to feel comfortable as a black woman so I feel like it's more than just talking the talk yes it looks good what we're doing on paper it looks good the types of stories that we're putting out for our community but you have to treat the people who are putting those stories out well you Mm -hmm. know it's not enough to just say all right, I've got my diversity, equity, and inclusion hires. I met my quota. Yeah, I'm at the <laughs> Yeah, met the
3: quota.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're, we're great. Band-aid on racism. Hooray. You know, <laughs> if those people who you have hired are not being treated fairly, if they're not given a voice, if they're not giving a say, if you're not caring about why what matters to them matters to the community at large, then you are still failing and you are completely missing the point.
3: What has been some of the feedback from the public when you've done your stories? Because you do urban affairs and social issues for investigative posts, and you do stories that are sometimes ugly, like people, they they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to see the things. They don't want to believe that the things that you're reporting on are actually happening in our community. What is the feedback from people? I've gotten
1: some amazing feedback that I've just been so reaffirming to me as a reporter I've gotten good feedback from a lot of people but I can't lie it it kind of hits home more when it comes from your own people you know when I've had African Americans telling me that they are proud of the fair and accurate coverage that I'm giving to reporting on sensitive topics when I'm speaking to people how I'm speaking to them and what I'm reporting on. Like one of the stories, for example, that I did about the aftermath of the looting and I did a data analysis and found that despite what social media was saying and even like the surveillance videos Buffalo News was putting out, most of the looting actually happened in North Buffalo in the suburbs. That was an important one for me to do, which I'm going to be honest, I did not expect those to be my findings at all. So it's not like I was going on a witch hunt, like, let me prove it wasn't just the black people. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I just wanted to tell a fair and accurate story, and that is not what was happening. And people don't understand. The early misconceptions about the looting were so detrimental, I saw people online talking about these thugs and thuggets on the east side and, oh, somebody let the monkeys out of the Buffalo Zoo and they're looting and all these ugly, horrible, nasty, racist things. And so when I get to do stories like that and I get to hear people say thank you for bringing about justice, bringing about a sense of truth, that validates like any hard day I ever have on the job.
2: This is actually a perfect segue because I wanted to ask you about a recent article that Rod Watson wrote in the Buffalo News pertaining to the coverage of the different high school football fights. There was obviously one in the city and, and one out in uh, Kenmore and how they covered. What do you what's your take on that?
1: I think that what he wrote is such a sad reality of the type of news coverage that we have in Western New York. I'm going to be completely transparent. I now live in the town of Tonawanda, and I see stuff happen. I see police cars. I see all sorts of things going on, and I always tune into the news to find out, man, what happened? There was such a large police presence, and I never see anything. But when something happens in Buffalo, you're always going to hear about it. And I remember having a discussion with one of my journalism professors when I was just an undergrad at Buff State. And he, who was not a person of color, but he told me, there are things that are purposely kept out of the eyes of the media when it comes to what happens in the suburbs, when it comes to what happens in predominantly white areas of the city. And going back to a personal experience, doing the looting story, when I called some of the places in the suburbs in North Buffalo to confirm whether they had been looted or not, and they would say yes. But every single one, (laughs) every person, do you know what they told me? They said, no, I don't want to talk on the record about this, but what you should do is you should go to some of those east side businesses. Like those were the ones that were really hit. That's who you need to be talking to. You need to go and talk about what happened on the east side. Did you see what they did on Bailey and Genesee? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've spoken to some of them, and now I would like to speak to you. I would like to expand the scope of coverage, because one thing about me, if I'm talking about someone, I don't want to talk about them. I want to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Every single story I do, I want everyone to have a voice. That is fair and equitable reporting to me. But people did not want to bring bad press to their side of town into their towns and villages into their little businesses in North Buffalo, because, you know, that's. That's not what we do here. That, that's not us. That's not the type of stuff that happens here. So I feel like, unfortunately, until people start speaking up, and not just people of color, but until consumers and creators of news start speaking up and saying, we have got to be more equitable, stuff like this, like the football fight coverage, it's going to keep happening if we continue to say it's okay. And if you're being passive, you are saying it's okay.
3: It, it almost seems like that when you wanted to go on record with these business owners from other parts of Western New York to to get an accurate portrayal of how much of looting in certain areas that they wanted to feed the narrative of, you know, well, the East Side, the East Side already has tons of bad coverage, you know, for, de- for years, mm-hmm. decades, you know, so let's just continue to to focus on the east side because that's what the narrative has been in the media. It's easy to do. It's easy to do.
1: Exactly, exactly. And even when you look at the crime stats, yes, we do have a lot of crime on the east side. Like I said, a part of love is accountability. Having been born and raised on the east side, not going to act like we don't have an issue with crime and violence because we do. But a lot of times, things that happen go unreported unreported to the police and unreported to the news media if they happen in more affluent areas or areas with predominantly white populations so you know it's always going to be a deflection to well look at the east side that that's where the real issues are happening because that's what we're we're being told and if you keep saying something enough people are going to believe that that is the full scope of the picture and that that's the truth when there's so much more to it.
3: And I want to talk about, because something else that we talked about off air, <laughs> <laughs> we had so many good conversations off air, yes. was the media framing of black people. We touched on it. There's these viral moments that happen, like with Antoine Dodson, hide your kids, hide your mm-hmm. wife. Mm-hmm. And with uh, television media, seems they when they find black people to interview, it's always... It's stereotypical. And then someone who probably is watching the TV that has never had an interaction with a black with a black person in their life is looking to the news because the news is portraying accurate, you know, news information. And then they see a black person and they're like, dang, that's 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 how they all must act. Mm -hmm. What are what are your thoughts on that?
1: It's so unfair, and it's so detrimental, and we as journalists have ourselves to blame. I think a lot of the times when you get the people, the Antoine Dotsons and the Sweet Browns and the people like that, I think a lot of times it's journalists out in the field who are not journalists of color who see someone who looks like maybe they have a big enough mouth and they're willing to talk, and so, okay, easy interview. Good. So I have a black person on camera, so it doesn't look like I only spoke to all white people. And now I don't have to go talk to any more black people. (laughs) So a lot of times I feel like people are lazy and whether it is repressed or intentional, they are also racist. People don't want to approach just a random black person on the street because of, once again, what do you see in the news? Mm hmm. They're inarticulate. They're dangerous. When you see the crime stories, they're the perpetrators. The news media has oftentimes been so detrimental to the perception of black America. We really have ourselves to blame. I'll say it again. And I think, and one of the things that, going back again to when I did some uh, 514 coverage last year, I got an email from a woman, an African-American woman. She said, Thank you so much for your coverage. Thank you for choosing people to speak to who are articulate, for showing people that the East Side is not full of uneducated, belligerent people, but that we are humans. We're capable of articulating ourselves. And it's so sad in 2023, we're still having to prove that we're human. We're still being seen as three-fourths of a person. We're still being seen as less than dogs and animals we don't have families, we don't think, we don't feel, we're not educated, we can't have objective opinions about things. It's always the black people are angry and irrational and irate. Or, you know, maybe, hey, look, this is funny to laugh at. But this is people's lives. And when you are not conscious about who you're putting out there, you're only giving people a glimpse into a community. And if that's what you're showing them, that's what they're going to think of everyone within that community. So there needs to be more consciousness in the production of news.
2: Yeah, and I think that it, it speaks to even if you're a reporter to be embedded with a group of people or, you know, a part of the city. Maybe you're not from that part of the city, but to be embedded with these people, talking to them on a daily basis, you really you you're not just, Oh, okay, something happened in this neighborhood. Let me go try to find someone. You're like yeah. I know who to talk to. I, I can actually make a fully formed story out of what's going on.
1: Yes, that's such a huge part of it, and that's another part that I want to emphasize for journalists is relationship building. It shouldn't just be the one or two black sources you have on speed dial to call when you're covering a quote-unquote black story. You should actually be going out and familiarizing yourself with the people for whom you're producing content. If I'm going to be reporting to a black audience, I need to speak to the people who are going to be affected by what I put out. I need to know them. I need to care about them. Just because someone does not look like you or have your shared experience, that does not mean that you're so isolated from them that you don't even want a sense of understanding of who they are and of what they need you to do as the person with the platform. So I'm really glad you brought that point up because – a lot of people are so afraid to integrate themselves in the communities. And as journalists, that's literally our job. Right. You know, it, it, it's no one's responsibility to come to you.
2: I want to talk to you. You touched on it a little bit. Just coverage of 514 and the George Floyd protests and, and how you approached both instances. Uh, what was your experience like? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, i know it was tough on a lot of us a year later and i am still not all there so you know at the height of like the george floyd and the black lives matter that was a hard time for me to reckon with 2020 was one of the hardest years of my life and it wasn't even because of the pandemic it was because i was so tired of seeing back to back all of these unarmed black people being killed but you have to as a journalist you cannot tune out of the news. It's your job. It's what you do. So you have to keep up with what's going on so that you yourself can know how to be a fair reporter. So that era took a toll on me personally, but I still was able to say, okay, you're reporting for the greater good, though. This is what you have to do. 514. I was one of the first journalists on scene when that happened. And that was the first and only day where I ever hated my job. Hated it for two reasons. For one, I felt like a predator. There are people lined up, people who witnessed what happened, people who are waiting to hear if their loved ones were among the living or not, people who found out their loved ones weren't among the living. And here I am saying, I'm so sorry, but can you please just say a few quick words on camera? And I'm grateful to God nobody flipped out on me because I don't know how I would have reacted if I had a reporter approach me in a situation like that. So It's a tough position to be in. It is, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was like the first reason why I really hated being a journalist that day. And the second reason was because of this little thing you have to maintain called journalistic objectivity. I am a black reporter covering a racially motivated hate crime. And I cannot express anger, sadness, disappointment in the inflection of my voice because it's never my job to tell people what to think or feel. I am to present you with the facts and let you take from it what you will. Mm-hmm. But I was so invested in what happened because like I said, um I-, I grew up on the east side. I grew up a couple streets down from where that market was. Before there was even a a supermarket there, when I was there on scene that day, it was almost like a family reunion because I ran into so many people I knew. And in that moment, I couldn't cry with them. I couldn't be angry with them. I couldn't console them. I had a job to do. And I hated that. And days on end, I was just on autopilot. I had so many people who I worked with and people in my family check in with me like, how are you? How are you doing? And my answer to all of them was, I don't know. I knew that if I allowed myself to sink into that place where I felt too deeply, I would not have been able to do my job. It took me so long before I even allowed myself to cry about it because I just I had to keep going. And I realized that what I was doing, it was more important than me. There were voices that needed to be amplified in the community. And I was grateful to have done that. But it was hard. It was hard being in the newsroom. It was hard, you know. And I'm, I'm going to say, I feel bad about it now, <laughs> but I remember being in the newsroom I was in at that time. And the news director said, we're giving free mental health days out for all our reporters. This has been a lot on all of you. We understand. And I remember so many of my colleagues, um, not people of color, you know, taking off. And I was like, they're on Ground Zero every single day. I, I did not take a mental health day off. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you're mentally distressed. But this didn't happen in your community, to your people. And like I said, now I know that was an incredibly unfair assessment an unfair way for me to feel. But you're not thinking about what's fair and what's
3: not when you're hurt. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very human emotion, too, to, to be angry and to... I mean, my my feelings of 514, I still honestly it's been over a year and I still honestly can't believe that. Has this happened? You know, still reporting on it and still talking to people that are that are, are closely affected to it, that have lost loved ones, that have lost friends, family. Um, it still, to me, seems unreal so with me having to process I know this is about you but just no (laughs) it's about us with me processing my feelings about it like I'm I'm still like you know torn too because I'm from the east side as well and that happened to my community as well so I I don't know what I'm trying to articulate here but it's just like it's a it's (laughs) a it's it's
2: a processing (laughs) thing yeah I think and it's you maybe think that you're past a certain point in the process, but maybe something you hear something or see something that triggers past emotions. And, you know, it's kind of going back to square one and and trying to work through it. I mean, I'm not from the East side, I've lived on the East side, but I, I didn't grow up there. And, but still, like I know people who are greatly affected by it and it's like, yeah, I mean, this is, you think about that person that was affected by it, and you're just like, man, and mm-hmm. got to work. You got to work through those emotions, especially being while you're doing your reporting.
1: Exactly, and again, the fact of like being a black journalist, that being so hard, being just a black person first, take the journalist off of it. One of the hardest things for me to reckon with too was the whole pray for Buffalo thing. Oh, look what mm-hmm. happened to Buffalo. Like, this didn't happen to Buffalo. This happened to the black community. This man did not say in his manifesto, I'm coming to kill Buffalonians. He said, I'm coming to kill black people. He didn't have Buffalo written on his rifle. He had the N-word. So, you know. Okay, let me roll it back a bit. <laughs> it's still touchy. Yeah.
3: You
1: know, I feel like, the black community we're made to share our trauma you know like the the shooting in california at the um the lgbt club there's this outpouring of love surrounding the lgbtq community and you know but what happened here it's like it's a buffalo thing like no (laughs) you're you're missing the point it's It's views like this that fuel the type of hatred to infiltrate our city, even from three hours away. It's like the black community here, I feel, is not given the type of respect and dignity that it deserves. And that's why it's up to us to change that, you know?
2: Do you feel in the aftermath of the shooting that the Eastside community's pain was kind of co-opted in a way. Like, oh no, it's 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 not pray for the East Side community. It's <laughs> it's pray for Buffalo at large.
1: Yeah, exactly. Pray for Buffalo. Cause this happened to
3: the city. It didn't happen to <laughs> you know these individuals yeah. in this community. Who were targeted on yeah. the East Side, which is a predominantly black community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then just throw a little bit of salt on the
1: wound. Where are we a year later? We had literally the eyes of the nation, the eyes of the world on us. Mm -hmm. We had the president. We had the vice president. We had celebrities, politicians, public figures, everything. Can you name one thing that substantially changed for people who live over there? It's a great point. Are there any more grocery stores? Is the quality of life increasing? Are... Is uh home ownership increasing? Are wages increasing? Is accessibility increasing? No, you know, it, it's still, it's they just still redid th- the tops, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have this new and improved layout so that when you walk into this place, you're not reminded of what happened because it looks different now, so so everything is okay now, and we have a mural, and you know, never forget. We'll say never forget every year on 514, and now everything's okay because we'll never forget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> what is that done, you know? And that was another hard part about being a journalist, just going there every day, Jefferson Avenue, and seeing it, a media circus. Like, people who lived in that neighborhood couldn't even walk and get to where they needed to be because there's just all these reporters and cameras and, you know, just all of this chaos and one thing about, and I'm like jumping all over the place, <laughs> but going back to that day again, um, I remember when we, me, meaning the journalists, we were all lined up on like the corner of Jefferson and Laura waiting for the mayor to get on scene, give a, a statement, and everything. And there was this woman, a resident who came out and she was very angry and passionate. She said like, why are you all here? You all are never here y'all are never in these neighborhoods you never care about what's going on with us and i remember a couple of my colleagues in the news looking a little i don't know offended annoyed <laughs> and i'm like guilty yeah exactly <laughs> i'm like she's right you absolutely have no right to feel away right now because everything she's saying is right when was the last time you were over here what when when it was the last homicide yeah. right, right. <laughs> right right you know like All of these things we're seeing now about the East Side, about the community activists, about the positive things and, you know, the people trying to make it right and all the good programs. These things and these people have been here for years. It took a racially motivated act of domestic terrorism to put a spotlight on it. Right. So. And it shouldn't be that way. It it should not be that
3: way. It absolutely shouldn't. What about. Because this makes me think about East Buffalo versus East Side. (laughs) There was talk of name change. The politicians were like, after 514 happened, let's stop calling it the East Side. Let's call it East Buffalo. And and to your point, a year later, still little has changed on many parts of the East Side. And I completely agree with you on that. I still go on the East Side. My dad lives on the East Side. So I see it on a weekly basis little has been done in certain areas and the east side is not a monolith. It's just like black people are not a monolith. The Please, east side can you just repeat that one more time? Black people are not a monolith. Thank yep. you. I needed right to make on. sure yes. everyone that, everyone, that, everyone in, hears in, it in loud it, and clear. Yeah, yeah. In, in case there was some issue with you know static or playback yeah. I need yeah. to make sure everyone heard <laughs> that okay the East Side is is not just Jefferson Avenue and the Meriwether Library and in the tops. The East Side is is Broadway, is Bailey, is Genesee, is Schiller, Schiller Park, Park. is mm-hmm. parts of Kaisertown, mm-hmm. uh, Lovejoy, Maston. There's so many areas of the East Side that still need the attention from us, the media. But back to the East Buffalo versus East Side. What do you call the portion of the city that is east of Main Street?
1: It is the East Side, and it will always be the East Side. Yes. Okay. (laughs) It's like (laughs) the difference between the
2: Big Mac and the Big Mick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and it's so funny. Like I think a week or two after it all happened, that was one of the stories I did, where I did like a bunch of man on the street interviews and asked people how they felt about it. People who lived on the East Side, and everyone said, "It's the East Side. I'm not calling it East Buffalo." Yeah. (laughs) Right. I did. You know what? I did.
2: I did uh, a similar story. And it was just like, well, yeah, no, it's the East Side.
1: Yeah. And even uh, when, like, someone had written me about my series, East Side Stories, and he said, thank you so much for calling it East Side, not East Buffalo, because number one is who we've always been. The East Side is quite literally a culture. It is something that we take pride in. And the biggest thing is changing the name is not going to change the way people see us. Okay, so it's not the East Side anymore. It's East Buffalo. So does that mean people will see us as, you know, good, upstanding citizens now? Does it mean that, you know, they, they won't be racist toward us anymore because we have this uh, dignified new name? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that changes nothing. You can call it new atlantis if you want like whatever you want
3: (laughs) (laughs) call it whatever
1: you want that (laughs) nothing is going to change the way that the people who live over there is treated unless there's a conscious decision in a collective effort it doesn't matter by what name you call that side of town but to clarify yes i call it the east side all the people i know who grew up And live on the east side call it the east
3: side so it's the east side and it I feel like for for us that have grown up and were born and raised on the east side like yes we know like we we went without and there's still so much inequity and and segregation in many parts of Buffalo including the east side but I feel like for us, it's it's a badge of honor. It's it's our pride. It's where we're from. Like, you yes. know, I'm always proud when I tell, when they like, where did you grow up? From the east side? On, on the east side? Um, uh, grew up on Broadway. Bo- born in Langfield Projects. Grew up on Broadway and Person Street. Come right on. in Broadway, Fillmore area. I'm always proud of that, no matter how much inequity still exists on the east side. And I'm, I'm just still so proud to be from the east side. I'm right there with you, man. I am an East Side girl
1: through and through. Yes. <laughs> like, it's in my blood, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see,
2: and I'm not. I'm not from the East Side. And, like, when I, moved, when I moved here, I lived in a suburb, and everything that I heard about the East Side was negative, just negative con- connotations about the area. And then when I actually, like, moved into the area, it was like, oh, well, this is not what I was told. And I think from when doing that story on you know east buffalo versus east side some of the things i heard was well yeah the east side carries negative connotations and that's why there was that push to rename the area but that seems to have uh, fallen off significantly
3: <laughs> i wanted to talk about one of the stories you did for investigative post about the book deserts on the east side and how there ha- there are less libraries, uh, I just say library deserts, book deserts, well, right. you know, same thing. you get your books from a library, yeah, um can you talk more about that and why why did you want to shine a light on the lack of libraries on the east side? So first, I have to give a shout out to
1: my colleague Garrett Looker. he really did the heavy lifting for like a year and a half with his research and reporting. He did the first book, Desert Stories, and I was able to do an East Side Story spinoff because of that. And I thought it was so important to keep the story and this subject alive because I don't think people understand how detrimental it is that there is a lack of reading materials on the East Side. When there was this huge closure of libraries that occurred over a decade ago, Please forgive me if I'm wrong. I believe nine libraries, though, were closed throughout the city. Five of those were on the east side of Buffalo. And it's created this gap. Some of those places where the libraries were, there's nothing there. It's just more urban blight. So it's not like a library was taken and replaced with something. There, there's just nothing there. And you hear about, especially after 514, that east side being a food desert. But people don't realize there is so much more missing residents who live on this side of town. And when you want to talk about fostering the next generation to combat these systemic issues, every single thing begins with education, everything. And if a child does not have access to a bookstore, to a library, to somewhere where they can get reading materials, where they can learn about the world, learn about maybe what they want to do in life, we are doing the entire world a disservice when we stunt our children. And I think that's what people need to realize. That's why I'm so grateful for the owners of Zawadi Books for letting me into their world and for doing what they've done for the community all of these years. Because we have some of the worst literacy rates in our schools on the East Side. And it's not because, as was said by pseudoscientific studies in the past— black people are just incapable of learning in the same capacity as white people that is not true it is a lack of resources if there is a white community where there are no libraries and bookstores those children are not going to have as well of a chance to thrive academically and then there's also the fact of when you have areas like the east side where there are their issues books a lot of times are an escape. I can definitely attest to the fact that, you know, growing up in the projects and quite literally not being able to get out and to go anywhere because these were not the types of neighborhoods you could take a friendly stroll down the street, you know. A lot of the times when I wanted to travel, I'd do it through a book. I would go frequently, my mother would walk me to the branch that I'm grateful is still open on, you know, Delavin. You know, I would check out different books, I would get different interests, and from reading, I accrued my love of writing, which birthed my love of journalism. So you can set a child up for so much success by what you give them, or you can set them up for so much failure by what you keep from them.
2: Let that marinate for a second <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about you are now president of the Buffalo chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists
1: yeah thank you thank you you
2: know it's an organization that's has it's been inactive for a little bit what do you hope to do by like building building it back up
1: yeah so we did undergo a period of inactivity but honestly it's birthed a kind of excitement in me because I feel like we're relaunching. We are being born anew and coming back in bigger and better ways. And what I want to do is to get our Black journalists ingrained in the community. It's so important for reasons like we discussed earlier. Community building is essential to what we do professionally. But then it's also just letting people see our faces, hearing feedback, having someone tell you, hey, you know, this is what's I love about your reporting, or this is what you could be doing better. You know, it's about fostering the next generation of journalists. As I said earlier, you know, it's we are not necessarily the most desirable journalism market. So one way to combat that is to nurture homegrown talent. And that's a huge mission of the BABJ and always has been. You know, go into those high schools and those colleges, find the aspiring journalists and give them incentive to stay. You know, we are... A fairly decent sized metro area and we're somewhat international you know we're right on the border right there with Canada so there's a huge area for exposure there are so many stories to tell because we have some deeply rooted issues there are so many different areas of coverage for you and there are places here where you can stand out as a journalist as opposed to if you were to go to like a New York City where you have to do some really substantial reporting (laughs) to be recognized you can really make a career here, and that's what we're trying to emphasize. Also, in coming back, we want to just get into the core of what we do, which is to promote representation in the newsrooms. As we discussed earlier, yeah, I feel like we're getting better, but we still have quite a ways to go. We can still make things better for our journalists, our news producers, our people who work behind the scenes are unsung heroes of color not just bringing them here but giving them incentive to stay making these equitable newsrooms making these equitable stories you know we care in the BABJ as much about our journalists as we do about the people for whom we produce news so I'm extremely excited I can't give away everything all I can say is stay tuned into our social media networks because we have some things coming up and I would love to Everyone to be a part of what's happening. Well just, I'm, just I'm as tuned an, in yeah, just as an <laughs> aside,
2: the three people in this room right now are African American, our producer Charles in the booth is, yes. is African American. <laughs> um <laughs> our our uh managing editor is black as well. This is a very black ass production, if I do so myself. <laughs> Period. Come
3: on. Period. <laughs> How many people are a part of the B A B
1: J chapter here? So we've got around 30 members, and the beautiful thing is not all of them are still journalists in Buffalo. Some people have moved on to have careers in different states, but are still supporting the local chapter. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. You know, we have a very diverse roster of, in terms of the things that people do, their Places in the field of journalism and even not in journalism. We have people who are just in the field of communications, PR, you know, marketing. And, you know, just all sorts of different areas. And also another thing that I want to throw out there about membership. Black is in the name, but you do not have to be black to be a part of the BABJ, you know. Mm -hmm. A huge part of what we do is promote inclusivity. And so we try to be as inclusive in our chapter as we are in promoting inclusivity in the newsrooms and in our media coverage. So, you know, if you share our ideals and you support what we do, you're more than welcome to join. So we we have
3: a nice roster, but I am in recruitment mode, so. Yeah, I am so excited. When I found out that you were the president, the new president, and I sent you a text, and I was like, girl, I wanna sign up. I wanna join now, too. So, I was like, okay, come on Yes. yes. <laughs> I was thrilled about that.
2: I wanted to ask you about print media. Some would say it's the most reputable of journalistic mediums. But It's hanging on financially. Um, You see newsrooms shrinking and even the big papers contracting. Uh, In your opinion, how can we change that course? Should we rethink how we deliver print news? Or what do you think?
1: So I wouldn't go so far as to say that print is dead. I don't think it will ever be dead but as a girl who got into journalism because i wanted to write for a newspaper it does break my heart to see that print is undeniably declining Mm -hmm. i think the cure for that is we have to be creative there's no such thing as i don't think any standalone like what am i trying to say medium everything is so intertwined so if you have a newspaper You can't just rely on those deliveries. There has to be a digital component. You know, if newsrooms, if you can collaborate with a local radio station or a television station, do that. The key to keeping print not just alive but thriving is to really utilize every possible outlet and, you know, technological resource that you can. We live in the age of technology where it is easier for anyone to produce news so when you take all those resources and you put them into a newsroom of people who know what they're doing you're guaranteed for success but you you can't be stubborn and I find that a lot of my colleagues in print are a bit stubborn because print is a very old school medium Mm -hmm. and I respect it for that reason but at the same time you cannot ignore the changes and you can't fight the changes think about your reach and your impact, how you can multiply that by so much by expanding your footprint, especially digitally. Most people consume news on their phones, on their tablets, scroll, right, right, <laughs> swipe <right>. up. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of people, I know a lot of times I myself find out about breaking news through social media before I even head to a news media outlet. And, you know, a lot of people have the mindset where, if I can get minute-by-minute update on a news story, why wouldn't I check in here instead of waiting till what? When is print going to publish this? Tomorrow? I'm hearing about yesterday's news today. Right. You know, so even though I feel like print, I will go on the record as saying I think print is the medium that has the most journalistic integrity. I feel like the best reports are done in print. I feel like there's so much more. I personally think it's vastly unfair that, print journalists are like among the lowest paid because i th- i feel like it's a lot more work and harder work to tell a print story cuz you don't have the aids of visuals or audio mm-hmm. but just getting back on track even though print is this wonderful thing it has to evolve in order to thrive it has to meet the needs of its consumers you know you cannot stay stuck you can't be afraid to do a new
3: thing
2: yeah we and need, can we just say amorphous
3: can we just say journalism is not dead It's not dead. What's next for you, Ejaz? Huh.
1: I don't know. I'm just, I never know what's next. I have to say my career has always taken me places that I said I would never go. When I said I came in here as a print girl, I meant that. And I fought all my professors who said I would need to learn how to do, like, audio and television stuff because I said, no, I'm going to write. I don't need to know this. But my very first job, who to thunk it, would be on the radio. <laughs> right here. <laughs> right, right here. the confines
2: of lower Terrace.
1: <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I've learned is that while it's good to have a vision, don't let your vision give you tunnel vision to where you're so just narrow eyed on what's ahead, you don't see the possibilities around you. So I'm just keeping myself so open to what's coming. But I'm just filled with incredible gratitude for where I am professionally and personally, you know, I used to think it's so fake when people would say I love what I do so much, I could do it for free. Like, you're lying. Everybody got to get paid. Okay. Yeah. okay. You, 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 you sound crazy. Like, bye.
3: <laughs>
1: <But> <laughs> work for free? Who? What? <laughs> but I literally feel I love what I do so much. I don't even feel like it's work. Every day I go into my newsroom with a smile on my face because I'm doing what I get to do. I'm doing what I love more than anything else in the world. And it astounds me that I get paid for it. You know, I was having a conversation with someone and he kind of asked me similarly, the same question. Like, so, you know, where do you see yourself going? And I said, when I think about everything I wanted to do, technically by my own standards, I've already made it. I feel like I, I've done and I'm doing what I've set out to do. It's never been about like this crazy acclaim and, well, I can't lie. I wanted to be the female Lester Holt. Like, that was my, my vision. <laughs> Come on, shout out Dateline.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, but, um, but it means so much for me doing what I do and doing it in my hometown and doing it for my community. Being a black journalist in the city of Buffalo fills me with so much joy. And not because, like I said, not because I've had the best of experiences, either as a journalist or as a black person, but because... I know where we're going and where we are from where we've been. I know that there are so many important stories here to tell and that, you know, the people who look like us might not be so inclined to tell them. So that's why the work here is important. So I think I did not answer your question at all. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll say what's next for me is tomorrow. I'll just keep taking it a day at a time.
2: Uh, what, give me some advice or Give give some advice for new journalists and journalists of color. What do you want to impart on them?
1: Huh. The biggest thing that I want to impart is something that I actually took from an interview of Quentin Tarantino's. He was asked, so like, you know, what's your audience? Who do you produce films for? And he says something to the effect of, I make movies for myself. I make what I want to see. If other people enjoy them too, cool. You should take that approach in journalism. Tell the stories that matter to you because if they matter to you, nine times out of 10, they're going to matter to someone else. You know, I've had to go to bat for some of my stories with some of my producers and editors who don't look like me or who haven't come from where I came from and say, I'm telling you, you know, you put me on this beat, you gave me this job for a reason, you got to trust me. This is an important issue, and I've been able to produce some dynamite stories because of that. So always keep in mind, trust your news judgment, and don't ever let anyone take that from you. I'll also give you the advice that I tried to fight my professors on. <laughs> Multimedia is the here and now of journalism, and it is the future. Even if you have one specific sort of channel that you want to go through whether it be print broadcast you know radio television you're going to need to know how to do it all nurture those skills foster relationships it is so much about who you know I have so many people to thank for me being where I am now every newsroom I've ever been in it's because I was able to build a good relationship with someone who was generous enough with their time to sit down with me for a cup of coffee. Let me pick their brain. Let me talk to them about their experiences in the field. So whether it's professors, whether you do, and don't be afraid to do cold calls and emails too. You'll be so surprised at how many people say, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to let you shadow me. And my final word of advice would be to, which I think is might be among the most important, create your own content right now. I got my start literally writing blog posts. I created a website with a free WordPress template. I wrote some stories. People asked me if I had clips and I said, yep, here you go. I've never been published by a major uh, news outlet, but this is what I have. So you can at least get a sample of my writing. In order for anyone to see your value, you have to see it first and you cannot treat your dream like a side hustle. When you're making those blog posts, when you're making those independent documentaries and news stories, Don't ever diminish yourself like, oh, this is just, you know, something I did. It's not professional, you know, but it's just, no. Believe in yourself because that's the only way that people are going to see your value is if you see it first.
0: I'm Jay Moran with Thomas O'Neill White. Angelie Preston, thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having us. You know <laughs> it's a pleasure. That's how they be talking about NPR
3: when they be having the guests? Oh yeah. And then it'd be like that one person and they'd be like we have blah 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 and they'd be like, Hi.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now you guys are making fun right now, but we just got done listening to a very serious conversation between you, the two of you, and Ejaz Jaseel, who's the president of the, the Buffalo chapter. Of, um,
3: yes, we love her. The yeah. Buffalo chapter of the National Association of Black like Journalists. Journalists.
0: There we go. Thank you for helping with the title on that. I asked you this before we went on here. What strikes you about EJAS?
2: She's, I think, when you first meet her, you realize she's pretty brilliant. Mm-hmm. She's measured, she is thoughtful in her responses. She takes herself seriously, or she takes what she does seriously, but there is a humor about her that's also refreshing.
3: For me, she breaks the stereotype that media has portrayed of Black women. She's thoughtful, like Thomas mm-hmm. said, thoughtful, so eloquent, so incredibly smart. And I feel like for Ejaz, she still cares enough about where she came from that she still does these stories that relate to the east side
0: the other question i wanted to ask you guys because i know you got into this in the conversation to a certain extent but the obstacles for a black journalist still still there today still obstacles
2: i think so um to some degree because when we look at the history of media it's really been a white space for so long operating in these spaces, there's always going to be obstacles. Um, And that's just kind of an equity thing at this point. I feel like there, and not to toot our own horn here at uh, Buffalo Toronto public media, but you know, over the last three, four years getting a little darker, which is great. And, and I, I think we are, I think we are seeing a little bit more of that in other, in other, in other, uh, at other stations as well. And that's, and that's whether, whether that's, you know, Asian, whether that's, um, Hispanic. Hispanic, whether it's black, you just, you need, uh, Native American, you need those voices in the newsroom. And you need to have those voices uh, in your content. It's just that that's, thats this is what the United States of America looks like. And to not do that would be doing a disservice to your station and to your you know, listeners.
0: Thomas O'Neill White and Angelique Preston, thanks for the conversation with me. And more importantly, thanks for the uh, conversation with uh, Ejaz Jaseel. Thanks.
3: Okay, bye.
4: This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of November 13th through the 19th. I'm your host and WBFO Program Director Tom Barrich. Western New York is no stranger to fall and winter storms, of course, but on November 13th, 1933, Buffalo experienced an actual dust storm. November 15th, 1896, is the day of the first transmission of electricity from Niagara Falls to Buffalo. November 16th, 1899, is the day of the very first football game to ever be played in Buffalo. It's easy to think that it may have been a professional football team, but it was Cornell University versus University of Michigan. November 16th, 1996, mere hours before a Sabres game, the well-known Jumbotron at the Marine Midland Arena crashed onto the ice no one was hurt. But I do kind of wish I was there to see that. And sticking with the sports theme, sort of, on November 19th, 1959, Ralph C. Wilson signs the lease for War Memorial Civic Stadium. You've been listening to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barrich.